Welcome to Divorce Explained, the podcast where we answer your questions and navigate the process of divorce together. Sharing real stories and personal experiences, this is your guide through it all. With your hosts, family law specialist Steve Benmore and divorce lawyer and strategist Leanne Townsend. So we are talking about something that is a bit weird. What are the role of emails in a divorce? I don't think I've ever heard any lawyer or divorce professional ever discuss the role of emails in divorce. So this, I think, is quite frankly, a revolutionary subject matter for discussion. Well, there you go. We're, we're making history then. <laughs> so for our viewers, the question then becomes, why are we even talking about emails when it comes to divorce? Well, the short answer is that communication is what forms relationships and what breaks relationships and when judges and mediators are asked to form an opinion on the um, righteousness the entitlement the reasonableness of a person sometimes emails is what moves the needle either in your favor or against you and so we're going to talk today about how do emails factor into divorce settlements. So let me ask you, Leanne, in the last few years, have you ever attached an email to an affidavit or a case conference brief? And if so, tell us your story. Um, definitely, I have uh, many times. Um, it, because often it is important evidence of what's gone on um, outside of court. I mean, often there's communications between my clients and their their ex, you know, via email, and you know something could have been, uh, you know, potentially agreed to via email. They could contradict what you know a, a, the other party's position that they're taking in their you know, affidavit or their materials. Um, sometimes it could just show, I mean, there's a certain word that I think judges abhor and it starts with a C and ends with a T and is a, a four letter word. And, you know, I've had situations where, you know, an ex referred to my client, you know, frequently using that term and actually had C-U-N-T-Y as their name uh, on the email. Um, that was how they'd saved that person's name. And, you know, it showed the judge that how this spouse behaved outside of court and how they treated my client, who was actually being nothing but respectful and courteous in her emails. So, um, you know, they can be included for a variety of reasons, but it's something that happens uh, somewhat frequently for me. How about you? Yeah, so, um, yeah, no, 100%. So there's the psychosocial, and then there's the evidentiary. So what do I mean by that? Um, judges, mediators, and lawyers really like helping people that are kind and really like punishing people that are not. And so the person that has renamed their ex-spouse's uh, name on their Outlook uh, email platform as C-U-N-T um, and that comes out in evidence is probably not someone that people are lining up to help. 
Um, but more importantly, there are lots of cases where people, for very good reason, they're angry, they're upset, they're afraid, they're breaking up with their spouse, and they engage in some really crappy conversations. And in those crappy conversations, and, and I'm not either supporting it or defending it, but when a relationship is in the process of breaking up and feelings are hurt, people say things that they regret later. But when you do it in an email, you might as well tattoo it on your forehead because <laughs> it will not go away even if you try to laser it off. And it will come out when you least want it to come out. And so I say to my clients, once they've hired me is, if you're gonna write that email, send it to me first. Let me look at it before you send it to the other person. Now I can't stop them from sending what they sent before they hired me, nor even after they've hired me, because they might've already sunk themselves. So I said a minute ago, there's the psychosocial, and then there's the evidentiary. The psychosocial side of email communication is what I said a minute ago, that judges and mediators and lawyers help people they like and they punish people they don't. And what you write in emails, particularly if you write some miserable, horrible, scathing type emails, that can move the needle on the psychosocial side. So don't do it. Send it to your mom, your brother, your friend. Don't send it to them. And definitely don't post it on social media. 100%. The evidentiary side is what you touched upon a second ago, where people will say, you know, let's not go through lawyers. If, uh, you know, the kids will live with you and I'll pay you $2,000 a month in child support. Or, you know what, you keep the cottage, I'll keep the house. Each of us takes the mortgage with the house, whichever house we get. Or, you know, the business isn't worth more than $300,000 and I'll give you half of it, something like that. So in early stages of divorce, people will write that in an email. And then six months, 12 months, 18 months later, while they're slightly more detached, more objective, they got legal advice, they found out things they didn't know before, they now take a different position. And then the other spouse pulls out that email and says, look, judge, look what she wrote when we split up. And now she's writing that the business is worth $10,000 when she says it was worth no less than 300. And so those are things that become part of the evidentiary record. And it sways judges and it sways lawyers and it makes our lives very difficult to try to convince somebody that when my client wrote that, my client was on cloud nine. They didn't know what they were talking about. They didn't have the right information. Yes, we could say those things, but the ink is dry and it's really hard to remove the ink. So emails are really important in divorce. They're really important in divorce settlements. They're really important in divorce litigation. And so I cannot underscore the psychosocial and the evidentiary role of emails. Be very careful. Um, one more thing I would say is that there's one company that learned 
that they can use artificial intelligence to bleach or to whitewash crappy communications between separating spouses. And that company is called Our Family Wizard. Our Family Wizard is a platform, it's a software company, it's for-profit, based in the US, multi-million dollar company. Their whole service offering is to create a platform, much like, um, much like you know, a Google Share or an Outlook platform, for separating spouses to communicate about their children and to communicate about um, money issues. Well, they established, or I should say invented, this process called a tone meter. And if you type in there aggressive language to your spouse, it will remove some of the edge on your communication, much like a spell check does when we type in word. Well, it's not foolproof, but it definitely reduces it so as to not cause as much damage in future reading of those communications as otherwise could. And the funny thing is, I was involved in a disclosure meeting last week where the spouses did use our family wizard and boy, were they harsh on one another. They were really exchanging some harsh language over the last year and a half and the assessor from the office of the children's lawyer, she herself was surprised that our family wizard was, let's just say, inadequate in taking the edge off uh, because they were so heavy on um, fierce language that even that software was not able to eliminate all of it. <laughs> and it ultimately was used against both of them at the end of the day, because in that case, the, the parents were really at each other's jugular and they were writing really horrible messages to one another about the kids, well, about the other parent through the platform that was supposed to be for the kids. And at the end of the day, the assessor had to decide which parent should uh, have decision-making. And generally speaking for our viewers, um, usually the person that is the most reasonable one will be granted decision-making. The one that's most capable, the one that's most child-focused will be granted decision-making authority. The real goal is to make both parents joint decision-makers. But in the event that the parents cannot communicate very well, the judges and the assessors will recommend decision-making to one parent. In this case, their communication was so poor that there was no doubt one person was gonna have to be the decision-maker. And so the person that was, let's just say, less offensive of the two offensive parents was granted decision-making authority on the strength of the, sh the poor communications between the two sides. So, so that's just an example of how communication, in that case, it was a platform, but it's no different than with email, how communication actually can affect people's rights. And in that case, it affected the father's rights to have a having decision-making authority over his children. Nothing could be more valuable than that. Oh, that's so true. And I mean, and another mechanism that emails um, or something like Our Family Wizard can be used for is actually protection. Um, you know, often if I have a client who is coming from an abusive relationship where, 
you know, their ex tends to be, get very verbally abusive um, on phone calls or in, in person interactions, one of the things I will always tell them is to keep your communication to email. Don't don't go on the phone with them. Don't talk to them in person. Keep it to email. And, you know, what that ends up doing is it, it forces the abusive party to wash down or water down their, their language because they know now it's in an email and someone else's eyes, um, even a court's eyes, may be on it. And so they tend to take some of the rhetoric that they're you know putting into their communications out of it and so it can actually be a way to help protect you know someone from emotional and verbal abuse um, and help empower them by giving them some way of having some control and boundaries around what communications they're having with their abusive acts and how they want to respond when they want to respond and and keeping a record of what's going on very good point by the way really good point now, let me just build on your great point, which is that when your phone rings and you see it's your ex dialing you, you have no idea what you're going to get in your ear when you press answer call. And if you do choose to take the call, you may not necessarily be equipped to respond appropriately or methodically. Whereas when an email comes in, you could say, oh, look at that, an email came in. I'm not gonna read it until tomorrow. I'm gonna put my phone away. I'm in the middle of a movie. I'm with my daughter. I'm with my boyfriend. I'm not gonna read that email. That's a choice that you could make. You could read the email and choose not to respond to it right away or ever. Email offers what a phone call doesn't. It offers the opportunity, just like you said, Leanne, to form boundaries and to decide if and when you deal with something. So that's another role of email. Um, by the way, I'm going to take this to the next level. Now, we don't have a lot of viewers today. So those that are on today are going to get some tremendous value from what I'm about to share. Emails are also a method to build your future rights. What do I mean by that? In many of the cases that I'm involved in, things are in flux. We are in the process of negotiating. We are in the process of litigating. We are in the process of mediating. And when I get involved, I'm well aware of the fact that the email communications from today going forward will form part of the evidentiary record whether it's in mediation, negotiation, or litigation. And so I offer many of my clients the opportunity for me to either edit their emails or write their emails. And by doing so, we are actually able to redirect the trajectory of the case in such a way that actually achieves their goal. Now, let me give you the most obvious example of that. Um, Divorce is hard for everybody. There's upset, there's anger, there's distrust. Well, email communication can actually be used to rebuild trust. And so in some cases, I will coach or potentially ghostwrite emails from my clients 
so that they can rebuild trust with their ex. And that's a very good way. Whereas their ex might not, not, not trust them, won't believe them, um, fears them. Emails can actually be used to change the trajectory, to change fear to non-fear, to change distrust to trust, to change conflict to collaboration. And I have seen how a couple emails can significantly change the trajectory of their separation, their divorce, and their conflict in a very positive way. No, I, I agree with that. I think that, you know, one of the, the challenges of email that we all have is that email doesn't show tone. And, you know, we all know the situations, uh, you know, on a personal level or even in a, you know, with a colleague at work type situation where an email's been sent and perhaps it has a, a colder or a nastier um, or angrier tone that really wasn't meant um, by the person who actually sent the email. So when you when you look at that factor happening, you know, between friends or between work colleagues, and then you put it in a situation between spouses who are not getting along or in, are in a conflict situation by separation and divorce, you could see how tone could really be misinterpreted at times and cause things to escalate. So I think, you know, having a, a lawyer or a coach or someone who, um, you know, reads someone's emails or reads a client's emails before they go out or coaches them on what to write, you know, can be very, very helpful. Um, you know, one of the questions that uh, sort of taking it in a different direction that I could see people having um, is the use of emails in court. Um, you know, there's certain rules of evidence that apply when we're um, bringing um you know, something like an email into court and somebody might say, well, you know, I didn't, what if I didn't write that email? Um, and my spouse, my spouse is very sneaky and manipulative and I didn't write that email, even though they're saying that I did. Um, so if you were in a court situation, Steve, and that type of thing came up where um, the opposing counsel, you know, perhaps presented an email to your client um, that was a nasty email and they said that they didn't write it. How do you deal with that type of situation? So we are in a situation where the role of IT, IT professionals, cybersecurity do play a role in the field of evidence. Um, and we've got cases where there's been fraud or manipulation to emails. Um, so in situations that are actually in a court process, there are orders that can be obtained for the delivery of the data uh, in digital format so that the metadata could be examined. The metadata is the data that's below the, the, the written data. Now, um, I'm involved in a number of cases and I've been involved right now in, in the middle of another trial uh, that was adjourned for a few weeks where the role of the emails is actually very important. Um, and there is allegation of, of, of uh, manipulation to the emails themselves. Um, and so in cases like that, we really do have to rely upon the people that have expertise. We went to law school. We did not go to engineering school, nor do we have any sort of uh, knowledge of the uh, email pl uh, communication platform. But when a client says to me, I never wrote that email, 
or I never received that email. I know enough to be able to ask for the actual raw data. Uh, show me proof that this email was sent or received. And in some cases, we actually go as close. You, you look at it under a, under a microscope and you see that the suffix was, you know, .ca versus .com, or they added an extra period, or they put a comma in between the letters. Clearly, it was never sent or it was never received because it's the wrong email address. And so long as we disclose that and we show that to the judge, most judges do get that. And by the way, that's in cases where you're really looking at it under the fine-tooth comb. Um, now, with that said, though, uh, there's a much larger question that comes out of your question, which is, are emails even admissible? And so the short answer is, they are if they meet the test of, and this is the test from um, the Supreme Court of Canada cases of Abbey um, and others, um, is Mohan and Abbey, which is, is it relevant to an issue that the judge has to decide? You know, simply showing an email that somebody called another person a dirty name doesn't meet the test of relevancy. Is it probative? Does it prove an issue that the court is asked to determine? Is it reliable? And that goes to the point that you made about it being a fraudulently uh, or manufactured email. So there are a series of threshold tests that need to be met in order for somebody to convince a judge that it is uh, admissible. And by the way, one of the arguments against the admissibility is not only is it not reliable, it's not probative, it's not relevant. Um, you could say it's meant to distract the judge. It's meant to smear the image of the other side. And so if you are in possession of an email that the other side is wanting to disclose to the judge that makes your client look bad, like your client may have said the C blank blank T word in an email, um, you can argue strenuously that it's not, it's not relevant. It's not probative. And if we lawyers were to now deliver to judges all of the communication between separating spouses who were arguing, who said nasty things, who were, who used poor judgment, who were, who were accusatory. I mean, the judge's role is not to measure the behavior of people while they're going through the worst moment of their life. And so it's not helpful, it's not relevant, it's not probative, and it might not even be reliable. So that's a way of actually avoiding the admissibility of a horrible email communication. Yes, often it can in, result in a distraction from what the real, you know, legal issues are. We just get into this, you know, di diatribe of, you know, nasty emails back and forth between the parties that really at the end of the day is not, you know, probative, um, nor is it helpful to the judge in deciding what, you know, the ultimate legal issues that are at play in the trial. Um, and so, and, and in a lot of these cases, you know, judges are very, aware of the nature of um, high conflict family law cases where there's a lot of he said, she said, and, you know, they're both saying entirely different accounts, you know, uh, are, are accusing each other of abuse and each other of bad conduct. And, you know, as you just mentioned, Steve, it's, it's not a competition um, 
you know, to see who is the worst person, um, because that may not, that doesn't necessarily matter to the legal issue. I mean, whether someone's entitled to, um, you know, spousal support or what the equalization should, payment should be, um, it doesn't matter if, you know, one person is a nastier human being and less likable than, than the other person. What matters is what goes to the heart of the legal issues. And these nasty email exchanges may very well have nothing to do with that. Yeah, and there's that concept also of, um, you know, people used to call it drunk texting, right? Um, you know, somebody sends something stupid in the middle of the night um, and that it completely damages their case. Um, when you've got legal counsel, when you've got a support system around you, friends, family, therapist, coach, um, spend your energy getting the right advice and limit your communication with your ex-spouse because there's a good chance poor communication will very much lead to poor results and a poor divorce settlement. And none of us want our clients to suffer from any of the above. And one way to avoid that is to listen to some of the tips that you and I gave uh, our, our, our viewers, but also to be very aware of the, uh, the use of emails as evidence to prove something that you probably don't want the judge to believe. So with that said, I, I, I invite our viewers to, um, um, to take to heart the role of email, text, and social media communications as they're going through their difficult moments in their divorce and to be careful to not um, accidentally or unintentionally give the other side an upper arm in, uh, in, in their divorce settlement by saying something that you shouldn't otherwise say. Yeah, great advice. Well, thanks, Steve, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'll see you here next week. Thank you, Leanne. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Divorce Explained. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to head on over to Instagram and follow at Steve Benmore and at Leanne Townsend Life for more. And if you're looking for specific divorce services, you can visit benmore.com and leannetownsend.ca. We hope today's episode made you feel informed and inspired as you move along through your divorce journey. Tune in next week for Divorce Explained.